0: welcome to the inside as summer officially began this week movie theaters were filled with customers of all ages top gun maverick and jurassic world continued to fill cinemas and elvis from baz lerman scored an amazing a cinema score from fans and after two COVID years of presenting their feature films and streaming platforms Pixar brought Lightyear back to the big screens everywhere and thrilled young fans and old. I am Jim Chabin in Los Angeles, and with me is our co-host, Wim Byens. He serves as CEO of Cineonic, and he joins us live from Brussels, Belgium, where it's evening. Good evening, Wim.
1: Hey, good morning, Jim. Good to hear you.
0: Do you have a feeling of just being kind of happy about what's happening at the box office this week?
1: You know, it, it, it's it's hard to keep up with it, right? So, in a positive sense, so I think that one thing is watching all the movies on the big screen, which you know takes a a lot of great time to do so. But but no, I think it's it's a stunning um, moment for us as an industry. Which I think we've all been waiting for, but when it happens, it it will feel good. So so I enjoy it. You can
0: feel it, can't you? You can feel it. Um, This week, uh, Top Gun just crossed over one billion dollars. It's the first time that's ever happened for Tom Cruise, which I think is is fantastic. Congratulations to him,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, Lightyear from Pixar is. Uh, back on the big screen after a couple of years during COVID, when they were on Disney Plus, Jurassic World doing really, really well, and then of course uh, Elvis. A- 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 have you seen Elvis?
1: Yeah, I-, I had the pleasure this weekend, right, when it opened up also in our territories. So I, uh, after the fantastic podcast we had, I-, I couldn't, you know, wait and watching Elvis, and I find it a stunning, you know, a, a stunning movie. And I, you know, I was there with. Um, my wife, multiple friends, and so on. And, and I asked, you know, what, what do you think about it? Is it as emotional as I feel it now? And I think it was. So I think it, it's one hell of a movie, by the way. Yeah. The, the, the podcast we had together uh, with Steve Binder was, was spot on kind of thing. It was, it was great, you know, to combine those two. Um yes. But bringing a story like that on the big screen again was, was just uh, was very well done. Very well done. Love the movie.
0: Wim, we have a great show today. We're going to take our listeners inside of Pixar Studios and the making of Lightyear. But before we do, we thought it might be great just to check in with our friend Paul DeGarabedian. Paul is the senior analyst of Comscore and you see him regularly on CNBC and elsewhere. He'll give us a snapshot of where we go and then we'll go to Pixar and Buzz Lightyear. Paul DeGarabedian, welcome. It's great
2: to be here, Jim and Wim.
0: Oh man! Well, there's a lot going on at the box office, so we have some questions uh, for you. Are you ready?
1: I'm I'm ready. Let's go. Yeah, we appreciate you both in your busy schedule, right? Uh, last time there were some some thoughts, you know, times about we talked about COVID and the difficult times in the business environment, but things seem to be changing these days, right? So, we want to talk a little bit about that. You reported it this week that we actually have a tie for the number one spot in ticket sales, what happened there? We had a very unusual occurrence this past
2: weekend where we had Top Gun Maverick and Elvis tied for first place. Both came in with $30.5 million on Sunday. And that's very rare to have a tie for first place. But I think, and that would have meant if Top Gun did indeed, had it taken the top spot, it would have returned to the top spot in its fifth weekend. And what ultimately happened is that Elvis, which had opened, this was its opening weekend, wound up with 31.2 million and Top Gun Maverick 29.6 million for that weekend. But let's not cry for Top Gun Maverick. That film crossed the billion dollar mark and gave Tom Cruise his first billion dollar movie. And Top Gun Maverick to me was the perfect movie at the perfect time because you could argue pre-Top Gun Maverick that the films that were doing well were aimed at 18 to 24-year-olds. But it seems to me that what Top Gun Maverick said was it doesn't have to be a superhero movie to be successful. The adult audience is back, meaning the more mature moviegoer and that's really good news for the industry.
0: So the key to those, those kinds of numbers are the four quadrants, as this the studio is called, four quads. Yeah. And that is young folks, uh, young males, young females, older males, older females. How are those buyer groups, those four quadrants, are they all coming back? What, what's the? How are they all doing?
2: I think they are coming back. We wouldn't be seeing these movies all in that top 10. You know, you have a family film in the mix with Lightyear. You've got a superhero movie with Doctor Strange. You've got Jurassic, so big IP. You've got a horror movie like The Black Phone. You've got Elvis. I mean, all these movies are just, every single one of them is aimed at a a very diverse audience, which means you have to have the movies there that appeal to certain age groups, and certain people but some of these movies appeal to everyone like you said the four quadrants over 25 under 25 male female as as the industry has looked at it for years and if we're going to ever get back to 40 billion worldwide which is the global what has been typical globally over the past few years we're going to need all those audiences around the world all those different demographics to come out to the movies how do you do that you have a very Interesting mix, a diverse, uh, eclectic mix of movies. And that's what we've got going right now. And it looks like we're going to have some great movies coming up over the next few months, for sure. So, Paul, tell us about
1: Elvis. Women were a big part of the success, right? Yeah. Tell us a little bit on, on who, who came to see Elvis. Well, Elvis, uh, you know, we,
2: when you look at the data, it drew more mature viewers. It drew women. Uh, And remember, for a while there was thought that, you know, women over 35 weren't going to come back to the theater or that families weren't going to come back. And this is another data point that shows with Elvis that it's not just about 18 to 24 year old males. That's sort of been the bread and butter, even pre-pandemic. But now we're just seeing that with as uh, the confidence of studios is coming back in lockstep with consumer confidence That's really powerful because you got to have the movies to get people in the theater. And I think for a while there, studio confidence obviously rocked by the pandemic. And they weren't going to put a big movie in a theater if there was no availability of theaters or audiences. But now we're back
1: in a big way. We have quite so few movies which are performing fantastic, right? But all at the same time. So what does it mean? Is overall, can we say that are they meeting everyone's expectations, Paul? There's no greater sign of normalcy
2: than having a bunch of movies duking it out at the top of the chart rather than just one movie dominating. So you've got a lot of really interesting movies, diverse content chasing different audiences. I mean, we're back because this feels positively like 2019, not thankfully 2020 or even 21, which saw the summer numbers plummet like no other because obviously the effects of the pandemic
1: are you telling us that we are getting back to the 2019 box office numbers also well or what do you think is the trajectory right now
2: i think right now we're going to wind up with between in domestically us and canada between seven and a half and eight billion dollars now that's still lower than the pre-pandemic typical domestic market of 11 billion plus but I say, considering where we were uh, in 2020 with a total box office of two and a half billion uh in North America, the year before it was over eleven billion. So think about that. and the interesting stat I looked at was that in 2020, at that point we were at about one point eight billion. and then the rest of the year only generated another you know seven hundred million dollars, and we wound up with like around two point five billion. Last year, we wound up with four and a half billion. This year, if we wind up close to eight billion, that's good news. It's going to take a while to get back to those $11 billion numbers.
0: Wim, you like to say that you're in the wow business. That's right. And I I, I would say, if you look at this box office, I think we can say that's, it's a wow box box result. Right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go right now. You've yeah, convinced yeah. me I got to get out of here and go to the movie theater. I agree.
0: Thank you, Paul. This is great. Come back soon. Thanks, and, gentlemen. Uh, Have
2: great- a great one. And I'll, I'll see you both at the movies. All Absolutely. right. Paul. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Wim Lightyear is one of the movies helping the box office post its best numbers in ages. And that's due in no small part to how storytelling and technology are empowering the animation artists at the legendary Pixar Animation Studios.
1: Today we are going behind the scenes at Pixar, with one of the team leaders for Lightyear. Anthony Greenberg works in the editorial department at Pixar. He has been a key leader on some of the studio's most iconic films, including *Wally* and The Incredibles. As the editor of Lightyear, Tony and his team helped bring the story of one of Pixar's biggest characters to life. Welcome, Tony Greenberg.
3: Thanks so much for having me. Good to meet you guys, Jim and Wim.
1: Tony, first of all, I want to thank you for you know, making the time being with us, right? And congratulations with a fantastic film. Thank you so much. This film takes a beloved character from the Toy Story franchise and dives into the universe to tell this story. What ideas did your team want to explore in Lightyear?
3: Well, thanks for having me on, and I'd uh, love to talk about like I love that you mentioned that you know it's uh our first movie actually in theaters in several years uh because we really did make this movie to be a cinematic experience that you would have in a theater to the point where we even worked out this is like Pixar's first full IMAX full full 143 aspect ratio uh experience that you could see you know IMAX so that was a, you know a big part of why we wanted to do that and uh you know Disney you know, likes to have us keeping some of our most beloved characters alive in different ways. And this was Angus's idea was to like, think about what what is the movie that inspired this action figure, this toy that was in Toy Story, and how could we make that its own standalone film? And I know that's a tough order for a lot of people because it's kind of taking a character that we've known and loved in a, in one way, in a certain specific way, for so many years, twenty over 25 years, and kind of reimagine the character. So I know that's a tall order, and we knew that going in. Uh, we had a lot of challenges trying to thread that needle. So, but really what we were trying to make was a, a love letter to those sci-fi films of the 70s and 80s uh, that we all love. and we all grew up in that era, like Angus and I, and uh, Jeremy Lasky, Dean Kelly, like all the, uh, a lot of the people that were making this film, we wanted to, pay homage to movies like star wars to close encounters to you know even robocop and the terminator just all those types of movies uh, and so that's really what was the fun part of making the movie was trying to fit buzz lightyear into kind of like this genre film that that pixar rarely makes they rarely go for like an, a straight up genre type movie but we thought it would be fun to try
0: Tony, you and Director Angus McLean have been working on this project. Uh, we read for four years, which always is mind-boggling uh, to yes. understand how much time you spend on storyboards to reels to the finished animation. How does the editor in your role? How do you operate at the hub of a Pixar production? Uh, tell us about your Absolutely. responsibility as a, as an editor.
3: Yeah, so obviously the the script is still just like any movie is going to be our our main guide to what we're trying to achieve, what the spirit of the film is and, and how it plays out. Uh, but I, that's really just to kind of, you know, get the storyboard artists to to draw the scene out, send it to editorial, record the dialogue and send it to editorial. And then we can kind of do, we can't just go crazy and do whatever we want, but obviously what we do is we, we usually cut it as ordered. This is the scripted version of the film, but we are more than welcome uh, and encouraged to try uh, alts to try different things, to move things around, to to break the sequence. You can you know move moments around. You can change dialogue to make it clear. And a series of conversations and a series of uh, wh- which way would this? How would this work better? Like can we can we reframe it, you know. So we get to be part of the conversation about like the camera placement, and we make the movie in 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 a scratch form to get to what we call a brain trust screening. I can tell you about that in a little bit, but we get to a street and we screen the film and we show it to what's called our Disney brain trust. And that's just a collection of different directors and creative leaders uh, throughout the studio. And then we all sit in a room and talk about it and figure out like what was working, what, what wasn't. Uh, we get a lot of great notes for them. They're not prescriptive. This isn't from... Uh, our executive team. This is a strictly creative conversation that we have here. And then we go back and start all over. And we do that about seven times. Uh, we have seven brain trust screenings throughout the four year cycle that it takes to make the movie. Uh, and it's not till about brain trust uh, six or seven that we actually start making the movie in earnest in animation when it starts getting really expensive.
1: The production workflow at Pixar seems to be constantly in flux. Characters, ideas, and storylines can be rewritten and reanimated until the very late. And you mentioned, you know, in this case, a four year process. How are you able to preserve the original intent of your storyboard while changing in things when you make it? And how do you maintain the pacing of a film like this?
3: That's a great question. And, and like, that's one of the big jobs of mine is that one thing I really try and do is how much dialogue can I take out and still tell the story? (laughs) You know, and how can we talk to our layout artists and talk to our animators about, like, okay, the character's saying this, but does that character need to say that? Can we just show that the character wants to do that by doing a certain action? So that's why we constantly make the film in these spinning cycles over and over again, where where all we have is dialogue and storyboards, uh, and we have scratch- score that we use from other films and we have a giant library of sound effects so that's how we compose the movie over and over again until we we've watched it from beginning to end and we say okay this this is working so now we need need to execute this in animation Uh, and so even though we're watching the movie that's all stills and storyboards we try and keep the spirit of each of those moments alive as we go through our different parts of, of production, which is you know going, going into layout and rough animation and then getting into final polish animation, camera polish, and then into lighting. Uh, we just see it get better and better, and sometimes we get ideas throughout that process as well, and we can kind of change things as we go. But the farther along we get in production, the less and less choices we have and the smaller and smaller notes we can make.
0: Tony, uh, Orson Welles is quoted as saying the notion of directing a film is the invention of the critics. The whole eloquence of cinema is actually achieved in the editing room. Is there a <laughs> moment in a film process where you say, there, I have it, it's done, we've got it, I know, I know I've got it, or are are you always in doubt? And what do you think of Orson? What do you, what do you think of his quote? Uh,
3: well, I adore that quote, and I adore that he... That's a true filmmaker who understands like what what an editor can do, I and mean, because I think you know he also mentioned about like it, it's not just cutting things from something that prematurely exists. It's it's montage. It's putting things together. Uh, you know, basically the way I when I talk to like uh, you know my daughter's school about like what I do to try and like put it in a way that they would understand, because a lot of times, but uh, not a lot of people really understand what editors do. And they might think that we cut something out of something that prematurely exists. Uh, but when I talk to like, uh, you know, people like my family or, or my daughter's school, uh, I talk about like, well, what, what would a movie be if it was an actual thing that you could just set on a table and you just looked at it like, what well, what is it? And a lot of times, you know, they won't really have an answer. And, and basically I say, well, it's a montage. It's a montage of four elements. It's image, dialogue, sound effects, and music. That's it. Any movie, it doesn't matter if it's Stan Brakhage's film or if it's Steven Spielberg's film. It, it's, that is what a film, those are the elements that are going to be in a film. And so it's the editor that actually composes those elements to make the film. And that's why I really appreciate what, what, what Orson said and how he talks about editors. And no, there isn't, a, a, oftentimes there isn't a time where you're just like, that's it, you know. I'm gonna kiss my fingers, and that's it. It's done. But there are a lot of times that feel like, okay, I'm onto something. You you know, when you're onto something, you can feel it. You know, editing is a very much, it's an instinctual thing. It's a gut thing. You want to just go with your gut on that and just see, see what you think. And there are a couple scenes in the film that the the light speed, the moment when Buzz breaks light speed, that entire sequence from beginning to end it was pretty much. That was the luckiest I ever got was I that was my first cut in story is pretty much almost exactly to the frame like what what's in the film.
0: Our insider today is Tony Greenberg the lead editor of Pixar's Lightyear at theaters everywhere. We'll be right back.
3: The Insiders is proudly presented by Cineonic. Cineonic's future-ready enhanced services and technology solutions provide compelling cinema experiences, peace of mind, and financial flexibility. Today, with more than 95,000 projectors installed globally, cinemas around the world trust laser projection by Cineonic to power the next generation of moviegoing. Visit Cineonic.com today and discover why theaters look to
0: Cineonic to provide the solutions of tomorrow today. Our insider today is Tony Greenberg, the lead editor of
1: Pixar's Lightyear. Tony, you spent four years at Lucasfilm and ILM editing visual effects. How is editing an animated film different from editing a live action one?
3: The biggest difference that I can see between an animation editor and a live action editor, and the live action editor oftentimes will work with uh, dailies, will work with material that was shot either on location or on a set acted by actors who have practiced their scripts and shot by cinematographers that know exactly what placement they're going to have and all the blocking and everything. And the is there is that I'm working with storyboards and dialogue. And so basically we have to manufacture a lot of the acting, a lot of the moments that happen. So we're not just picking the best scenes or the best moments. We're actually having to manufacture those moments. I obviously would, would have loved to uh, work in live action, but I also felt like being a visual effects editor. I was farther away. I, I just felt really distant from the actual creation of the story, uh, and I felt more like a technician that was helping create a lot of the imagery, which was great. Uh, and I really respect what a lot of my colleagues in visual effects do. I just wanted to be closer to the story making process, and that's really what drew me to get to Pixar. And I think the big difference is is that. A live action editor is trying to make do with the with the shots that they've received, uh, whereas in animation uh, we're working with storyboards and working with dialogue that may or may not be the final dialogue and pretty much every line of dialogue that's in any animated film is a composition of several sessions uh, that could have been like one of them could have been from two years ago and another one was from last year and then one was from the other week and it all came together to make that one sentence uh, you know we speed speed up parts of the line and do all sorts add vocalizations add stutters and cops and other things we we have to all that has to be composed whereas in live action it, a lot of that I mean you, you can do cutaways to kind of manipulate uh, the performance but uh, really, you know, we have a lot of control over the overall performance, and a lot of times, you know, the the uh, actor might see the film and be like, "Wow, it was really great," and it's like, "Yeah, <laughs> you 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 were great, but we made it even better. Like we we had a lot of manipulation in there."
0: As with every great Pixar film, this movie has a big heart and a lesson. Uh, Buzz pursues his ambitions to fly and finish his mission. But as he does, we find that every time he departs into deep space, he is also missing four years of the lives of his friends and colleagues. It's a poignant theme about pursuing work at the cost of a personal life. A Pixar film takes four years to produce. Is there a common theme here that you all could relate to about the passage of time and, and balancing work and personal lives?
3: That's a great observation and a great question because that was exactly why we chose four years and i'm sure there's plenty of scientists out there that might have a, a different take on the effects of the time dilation uh, we're not nearly uh, that smart but we did get to just kind of randomly pick like well what would it be and we know that it takes four years and that is what it's like a lot of times like we are working in the trenches for so long and then we emerge and we're like oh what happened you know, this is the world. Oh, wow! My daughter's in high school now. It's crazy. Okay, obviously, it's it's not that extreme, but but it is like a it's a nod to the experience of working on a Pixar film.
0: And real quickly, how long are you working on the story before you start really putting a pen to paper?
3: Absolutely, and pen to paper being uh, going, going into, into real into production the 3D world yeah. and working into yeah, yeah we're creating shots. Yeah even though I worked on it for four years, Angus and Galen and Jason, our screenwriter, and even Dean Kelly, our, our story artist, we're working on it for another 18 months before that even. And Angus might've been working, I think Angus worked on it about six years really, you all. but as we do the story process, the, the, the working in storyboards and the scratch dialogue and scratch the score and sound effects, that's usually about two and a half years. And then we have, a period where we're both we're both flying the plane while we're building it, basically, is what we say. And it's basically like we do have to start making the movie, but we are changing it still at the same time. So we might have certain sequences that are pretty far along in animation, and other sequences that are back to the drawing board, and we're rewriting it and trying to figure out how we're going to connect those dots. Um, and uh, but you know, usually to make the film, it's going to take about two years once we actually start making it in earnest. But for the rest of the time, that's we're just operating in in a scratch form.
1: Lightyear made the return to the cinema, right, in a big way, and we all appreciate that very much. Offering many large format experiences for viewers, how did this open up the storytelling opportunity for you and for Angus? Well, especially in a
3: film like Lightyear that is supposed to have elements that feel like a spectacle, that evoke feelings in you so hard, like that, that. It's just such a big experience to see it in the theater that you kind of lose sense of yourself, and that's the moment that that we are all trying to give audiences around the world is to where they can go in there and it feels like they completely lose their surroundings. It's something that you can't do as well when you're sitting in your living room and you can hear the washer on spin cycle and the you know the cat's watching in front of the screen. Or it was made to really bowl people over in certain moments. Uh, a lot of the light speed sequences and a lot of the action between Buzz and Zerg, it's one of the bigger action movies that that Pixar's made. And we really wanted to lean into those capabilities uh, that we have with our newest animation technology.
0: Well, we saw it at a theater. And as uh, usual is the case when you see a Pixar movie, all the families come into the theater and there are a lot of little voices talking to their parents and getting up and in, in, in and out of their seats yeah. and, and and eating and chatting. And the lights go down. You must have went to a matinee. It was a matinee. And, uh, and, and I like to see it with all ages. And so the lights go down and the movie starts and the little voices get quiet. Huh. Uh, Tony Greenberg, it's a great movie. It's showing everywhere. We recommend all of our friends and families to get out and see it. And and great good luck! Thank you so much for being
1: with us today.
3: Thanks so much, James and Wim. Uh, yeah, and if you can go see it in theaters, it's it's definitely worth it.
1: It's worth it. We'll do. We'll do, Sonny, We'll do.
0: Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Wim. Our quote of the day comes from Tom Cruise, who tweeted out this week to all the films in release, to all the studios, to all the exhibitors. Congratulations to the audiences. Thank you for venturing out and allowing us to entertain you. Thank you for listening. The Insiders is presented by Cineonic and produced by the Advanced Imaging Society in Hollywood. Our executive producers are Adam Castles in New York and Mike Piltsecker in Los Angeles. Brett Harrison produced today's show and our technical director is Matthew Bach Lombardo. This is AIS.